0: Uh, John chapter 1 is where we are. I am old enough to remember the days when the only way that most of us would ever get on TV would be to find someone else who was on TV and stand in the background and wave. Um, you know, TV reporters doing some live event, and you'd you know get behind them and jump up and down and make a scene and, and get attention. And nowadays, that gets even better nowadays, because nowadays you can do that and call on your phone and have somebody tune in so you get instant gratification. You know, not only are you on TV and being seen, but somebody is telling you that they're seeing you. Some of us are even old enough to go back to those days of like Super 8 movies, you know, with no sound when it was our sibling's birthday and we were in the background making faces and waving because, you know, we, we've got that, that longing to be seen, that sort of self-seeking nature that's kind of a part of who we are as human beings. Even if you've never clamored or feel like you've clamored for attention in that way, uh, you certainly know the experience of feeling overlooked, of feeling like people should see me at this point, uh, and and feeling downcast by that. Selfies and social media nowadays have have kind of fed a little bit of that appetite for being seen. Uh, They can certainly have good use, but they can also encourage that sort of sinful craving for attention. Jeremy Smith was teaching a group of us not all that long ago and was, I was reminded of this between the services that he had talked about selfie mode and and one of the things that he had uh, Described there was a YouTube video and I've not seen it yet of a guy who was walking around pointing out landmarks in the city But had the he was doing video and describing the landmarks But had the, the camera on selfie mode the whole time So the video when it was all done was just him talking about all of these amazing sights that he was seeing That's kind of endemic, maybe in some sense, of our culture and its um, push that feeds sort of that human nature to want some attention. Um, This morning's sermon is not about selfies, but it's about the opposite attitude and about the humility, the grace that God gives to help us to glorify him when the world around us and even our own hearts are tempting us to glorify self, and we see this in John chapter 1 through the ministry in particular of John the Baptist. John the Baptist we've been introduced to in John 1 as being the forerunner, the one who goes before Jesus Christ, the one who prepares the way, who is sent by God, to prepare people for the the coming of Jesus. And it is through uh, looking at John's life a little bit this morning that I think we get some some tremendous lessons about what it is not only to be a servant of Christ, but to be a witness for Christ, as we are all called to do. Certainly, Jesus Christ is the focal point of the Gospel of John, and that's what we've seen in the purpose statement in John's Gospel, that that these these things are written to show us signs of Jesus Christ to confirm that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you might have life. And so the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, is focused on Christ, focused on the Word who came in flesh, God who came and dwelt among us, who Jesus Christ is fully God, he is creator, he is the one who is the light, and John is sent as a witness to the light. So the Apostle John who is the human author of the Gospel, is writing to us about John the Baptist and helping us to see that John the Baptist is designed and commissioned by God for this ministry of proclaiming the truth about Jesus, of being a witness to Jesus Christ and paving the way. John, as he writes this, is also seeking to be clear in distinguishing Jesus from John so that we we are constantly aware of the fact that Jesus is eternal God in flesh. John is an ordinary guy, just like you and I, who has been called to and empowered for ministry. And so as we look this morning again, we see a little bit more about John the Baptist. I'm going to pick up in verse 19, and we'll read just a few verses to start with John 1.19. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Let me stop there for a moment. He starts this off, the Apostle John writing about John the Baptist, two separate individuals, and he says, here's the testimony of John the Baptist when the the Jews came out to interrogate him. He uses that term Jews frequently in the Gospel of John, sometimes just on a factual basis to say there are many Jews who believed in him, sometimes in a more derogatory way, kind of pointing to the religious system of the Jews and the Jewish leaders, and that's sort of the tone here. In Mark's gospel, in Mark 1.5, it tells us that people from all over Judea and Jerusalem were going out to listen to John the Baptist. He was out in the wilderness area around the Jordan River, and so from Jerusalem, at least nine miles or more of a walk that, that they are making because they've heard about this one who is preaching, who is calling people to repentance, who is preaching in a mighty way and baptizing people. And so these crowds have gone out, to listen to John the Baptist and many to be baptized. The Jews understood baptism in terms of an act, that it wasn't completely foreign to them, but it wasn't something that most of them had ever experienced. Because baptism to them in the first century was something that a Gentile did if he wanted to become a Jew. And the symbolism of it was you were unclean as a Gentile, you want to become a Jew, and so this baptism is symbolic of, of God washing you, of your old sinful lifestyle. There's there's certainly some reminiscent facets there of our own act of baptism where we're displaying not only union with Christ, but also that idea of being cleansed, and that's what it was for the Jews at that point, this symbolic washing that Gentiles did, and and Frankly, it was also, historians tell us, more of a self-administered thing. A Gentile who wanted to become a Jew would walk out into the body of water and dip himself as a way of displaying that I am repenting, if you will, of my old way of life and being washed clean as I convert over to Judaism. So what John is doing is at minimum odd to the Jews that he is administering a baptism suddenly raises questions for them of authority, who is this guy that's doing this, and more importantly, why in the world is a Jew baptizing other Jews? Why are Jews being baptized, period, and why would he be doing this? And so that's where this question comes up for the religious leaders. You can see how they're facing a bit of a dilemma at this point, point. Beyond the the questions about authority and baptism, there's also the sense that he's moving in on their turf because now all these crowds are going out to hear him preach. They are the religious leaders of the day. And and so there's some sense in which they are not really comfortable with what he's doing and, in fact, seem to be a little incredulous at points. If you look down for a moment at verse 25 after that first Q&A, verse 25 says, They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? B- Basically, this is that authority question. They're saying, listen, you have said, I'm not the Messiah. We've asked you if you were Elijah. No. Are you the prophet? No. And so in whose name do you do this? Who are you that gives you the right to baptize people? We have to go and report back. And so it comes down to this fundamental question of who are you? The first question there about, the, about Elijah, when, when John says, I am not, uh, stems from the last promise, prophetic promise that God gave in the Old Testament. If you go back to the end of the Old Testament, as it closes in the book of Malachi, Malachi 4:5, God said, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so religious Jews had some sense of anticipation about a return of Elijah. The Old Testament prophet Elijah never experienced death. Second Kings chapter two tells the story of of how Elijah just went up into heaven, was brought up into heaven before the eyes of his colleague Elisha and before 50 other prophets who were standing at a distance. He didn't experience death, he just sort of vanished from them in a whirlwind and was taken up into heaven. And, And so by the time of Christ, Based on Malachi 4.5, there's this expectation that one day when God is beginning to trigger events of the the latter days, there will come Elijah back from heaven. He will appear in some way and and will usher in this next era. Uh, We see from Jesus Christ speaking that he saw John as fulfilling this role. Despite John's answer, and we'll talk about that in just a second, Jesus Christ says in Matthew 11.14, John is... Elijah, who is to come. And so Jesus says of John the Baptist, he fulfilled that ministry of that one who was sent before the day. And yet, in John's mind, I think it's fair to say, he knew that he was not literally Elijah. He's anticipating, as others are, Elijah to come back from heaven, and he knows he's not, and so there's that, and there's also just the, the lack of understanding at this point. Uh, we're going to see later on in this passage. Um, John doesn't have all the answers. John is doing what God has told him to do, and in faith is proclaiming the word as has as been taught to him, but I think he's speaking out of genuineness of heart when they say, are you Elijah? And he says, I'm not. I, I'm John. I know, you know, I know that I am not Elijah they also say to him there and we saw it and we read it earlier in verse 21 are you the prophet it goes back to Deuteronomy 18:15 where Moses wrote the lord your god will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers it is to him you shall listen again there's an expectation amongst the jews of some kind of end times prophet who is sort of in the, the line of Moses if you will or at least looks similar to Moses acts similar to Moses in some way Again, John says, no, I'm not, I'm not him. I am not this prophet. It seems like in response to the question, John's, John's answers get shorter. I am not the Christ. Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you a prophet? No. And John is, I, I think at that point, becoming more emphatic because, because what's becoming clear to him is they're putting the emphasis in the wrong place. By, by questioning him and, and sort of holding him up with all these potential offices, John is seeing that they're not getting it. It's not about me. This isn't, don't, stop all the questioning of me. I'm not the focal point in all of this. And John is very much at this point trying to, to shut down this. Not that he's bothered so much by answering questions, but by the tone of the questions that somehow he is something special when in fact what he's saying is, no, this this is not about me. So he said of course verse 25 when they said if you're baptizing and you're none of these then who are you? Verse 26 John answered them I baptize with water but among you stands one you do not know even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And then for background John adds these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. That Last statement is pretty remarkable. John is, at this point, eager to shift the spotlight. Eager to do what God has called him to do and and to make it clear that he is merely paving a way and it is the one who comes after him that they should be concerned about, that they should be focused on. And, And so he is anxious here to say, listen, this is not about me. And in fact, he draws on something here that was customary in the first century. If you were a disciple of a teacher, you didn't necessarily pay tuition to that teacher. You were a servant of that teacher, and you you followed that teacher around, and you did whatever the, the teacher asked you to do, and that was your way of paying for the training and discipleship that you were getting, and you could do all sorts of menial tasks. But even there were limits to that service, especially anything that had to do with the master's feet, you were not expected to care for the master's feet. There's a Jewish document, an ancient document from the second century in which a rabbi writes this, all manner of service that a slave must render to his master, the pupil must render to his teacher except that of taking off his shoe. So even for disciples, there was sort of a, a bottom line that said, no, that, that you are not expected to do. That should, by the way, give us pause when we stop and think about the act of Jesus Christ in washing the disciples' feet, and just how remarkable that is, in light of the knowledge then that even pupils who served their teachers and were expected to do everything a servant did weren't expected to ever touch the master's feet. And there's Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. That's why John's comments here are so exceptional. He's saying, guys, listen, I am nothing here. I am small. I, you, you, you don't need to be focused on me. And in fact, he says, I am basically less than a slave at this point because I'm not even worthy to untie this one's feet, the, the shoes of, of, of this one's feet. I mean, that's, that's basically diminishing himself as low as he can get at that point to try to say to them, um, don't you see, I'm not the one. I, I know people are coming here and, and they're responding to this preaching and this baptism, but this is all the work of God to prepare the way for the one you need to focus on and the one you need to see, and that's the one who comes after me. I think if, if indeed God is helping us through this story of John the Baptist to see a faithful witness, to learn from a faithful witness, to learn from God's work through a faithful witness, then one of the things that we ought to see in this is God desires in us humility. Humility. God desires that as we be servants and we be witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we be marked by being humble, by being people who long to point to the Savior and not to ourselves. There's some irony, I think, in this interrogation, in that John was the son of a priest. We know the story of how Zechariah the priest was met by an angel while he was doing priestly service in the temple in Jerusalem and told, you will have a son, and his name will be John. John is well within bounds as these priests and Levites come along to say, hey, hey easy, don't, don't go dissing me. I'm a son of a priest. I'm in your line, you know, I'm, I'm like one of you, and certainly has an ability to, to sort of ward some of this off. At minimum, he's got the crowds. I mean, they're coming out to see him, and so just simply from an ego point of view, John is kind of the spotlight at this moment, and John certainly has the capacity to to begin to turn that crowd against these guys and, and, and probably chase them back to Jerusalem. And he doesn't do any of that, does he? John, empowered by God for service, not only answers their questions with a degree of grace and clearly with truthfulness, but he uses that as an opportunity to talk about Jesus Christ. He takes their questions and their objections, and he pivots to show them Jesus. It's a marvelous example, I think, for you and I. And the situations that we face where people question things about our faith or why we do the things we do or why we're patient or joyful or show integrity and why we put up with stuff. And, or even when they begin to be critical of our faith and they mock us for certain things. John doesn't get defensive. John doesn't try to raise the temperature on the debate at all. John humbly points to Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to get in the way of what's going on here and have the focus somehow be on him. An angry response, a a sharp, unnecessary rebuttal, all of that's only going to serve to distract at this point. And what he wants them to see is Jesus Take a look in John chapter 3 for just a moment when John's own followers come to him. Now this is as the ministry of Jesus has been gaining and the crowds are shifting. And John 3 verse 26, this is John's disciples say, that his followers, the ones who come around him as sort of pupils. John three twenty six, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered and said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. There is John saying, guys, it's okay. Jesus must be made great. I must be made less. The crowds, the attention that have come to me, that needs, that, that, that by necessity needs to go away because they need to be at the feet of Jesus. Jesus must be made great. In fact, he draws that picture and says, I'm like the best man at the wedding." Hopefully, the best man of the wedding, if he does his job right, is not the spotlight. He is not the focus of attention. If you, uh, if you went through a wedding and you had a best man who became the, the focus of attention, you probably weren't all that excited about it because he probably did something he shouldn't have done. His job is to hand the ring to the groom and to have a nice toast. And if he does that, then he's done well. And the rest of the time, he should be in the shadow of the groom, and the spotlight should be on the, the bride and the groom. And that's what, he's, that's what John's saying, guys... I am am in joy because the groom is coming for his bride. The groom is here. I I was just here to to point to him. And I think we can learn from that. It's really hard to effectively point people to Jesus Christ if we are driven by our own self-motivation to be liked and seen and appreciated and admired. When we let ourselves get in the way and we we are mostly concerned about, will people see me? What will they think of me? How much will they like me? We get in the way of our witness as followers of Jesus Christ. It's easy to do. Because we're, we're on this earthly plane and it's easy for us to fall into that. There's an insidious nature to our self-seeking that will even allow us to talk about our faith and our strength and our peace and our confidence and our contentedness and our joy. And the question is, do people know that that peace and joy and strength and, and comfort and contentedness where it comes from? Do they understand this isn't something self-generated? It's not because I'm just such a peaceful, happy, joyful person. It's because of the grace of God at work through Jesus Christ. Are they seeing in our humility the Savior? When the, when the selfie is taken, sometimes you know, it's, it's that, that selfie that has us in the foreground and the, the historic object and the beautiful object way there in the background. And John has got a wonderful knack here of bringing Jesus to the foreground and saying, I, I need to be the one back here. And they need to understand that, that anything that I've had, that, that's come from heaven. It's God's gift to me. Our aim should be to follow that example and make sure that when God's grace gives us an opportunity for people to, to look at something in our lives, to commend perhaps our integrity at a work situation, to see our family and, and, and see it out in public and say, wow, family looks like, you know, it's just ordered in some way or something. There's something they admire about that. We all have those times when they're not admiring that. It's the opposite. I, I know that. But sometimes, right, they see it and they go, wow. Look at that, look at that life. Do we then show them back and say, "Look, look, look, this is this is not about me. This is about a gracious God who is at work in me It's his, his strength. When I was a kid, I grew up in a in a Baptist church that had a big pulpit, this were big pulpit days, and so when I was little, um, my dad would do stuff down at the church during the week from time to time, church business of some kind, and so it was always my thing, you know, if nobody was around and the church was dark, to slip into the sanctuary and go up in the pulpit. And and I remember when I was too small to even look over that big pulpit, there was a brass plate right in the front of the pulpit that the speaker would see as they walk in, and it was an adaptation of John 12, 21, and it said, Sir, that we would see Jesus. It was a message to whoever spoke that, listen, they're, they're going to see you. You're up there. They're going to listen to you but please make sure they see Jesus because that's who they desperately need. They need Jesus Christ. And so preach Christ and hold out Christ. And the same is true for you and I and our lives. Sir, man, that, that people would see Jesus. That when they look at our lives, they would understand that this is not about us and how smart or kind or gracious we are, but that we humbly point back to Jesus Christ. Our eternity is bound up in his finished work And we are sustained by his grace. He deserves the glory for that. Let me back up to verse 22. We didn't read it before. They've just finished that first interrogation. It says, so they said to him, who are you? John 1, 22, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. As being a witness to Jesus Christ, we need a humble life. We also need a strong voice. We need to speak. There needs to be words that go with the life. Because the godly life, if lived out as that bright, shining stars in a dark world, will almost by necessity draw people to see something there. And we need a voice that then speaks up and draws them to the source. We need to be faithful in those opportunities. This this investigative party is getting a little agitated at this point. They've run through their first set of questions, and John has just dismissed them all. No, no, no. And so finally the, the comment comes down to, listen, we have got folks back in Jerusalem we have got to answer to. You're going to have to tell us something. And John even then doesn't focus really on himself. He doesn't say, well, I am John, son of Zechariah, or I am... A student of the Old Testament scriptures or anything really about himself, his answer to them at that point is simply, I am a voice. I am one who is just projecting to you what God has told me to say. I am speaking to you God's truth. That's what I know, and that's what you need to hear. And so when you go back to Jerusalem, it's not all about who's this guy, and what is his baptism, and what's he like, and what's he wear and, and, and this and that. Just go back and tell him it's just It's just a voice who is proclaiming God's truth. And he quotes then from Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John understands and embraces his role that God has called him to in the simplest of terms. I am not here to perform great miracles or signs, what Jesus will do. I'm not here to tell you amazing stories about the future, I am simply called to speak as God has called me to speak. And that, for you and I, is is everything we need to know. Be a voice of God's truth. As you're living out a humble life, and people are noticing something different about you, be prepared to speak forth God's word. He is clearing a path for the Messiah by being the instrument of God's voice, by being the human instrument of God's voice and speaking God's truth. And it's not an isolated calling. You and I are commissioned to this, right? That's what Romans ten fourteen says. How will they believe unless they've heard, right? How will they hear unless someone speaks? And so that's what he's called us to, is, is speak his truth. Testify of Jesus Christ. Declare the truth of Jesus Christ. A humble life alone may attract interest. It may attract compliments. It may attract curiosity. It may attract criticism, but a humble life alone, apart from truth, is not going to lead anybody to faith in Jesus Christ. They still need to know who he is. They still need the gospel, and we still must speak. If you have been saved by God's grace, and you're trusting in Jesus Christ, then your voice belongs to him. And if we are to be effective in evangelism, then we need to ask God not only for the grace to live out that humble life daily, that patient, kind, grateful life that, that's different from the world around us, but then also to be people who are unafraid to speak when the opportunity comes, who are unafraid to use our voices to speak clearly of Jesus Christ. Drop down now to verse 29, last section here. Uh, John 1:29. The next day... John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness and said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Commentary spend a lot of time on verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and it raises the question of how much did John understand as he speaks these profoundly rich theological words as he speaks this life-changing truth how much did John actually know what he was describing and the liberals will try to say oh liberal folks in in theology will try to say he he probably he might have said something like behold the lamb but the rest of that takes away the sin of the world that was probably just added by John or some editor later on that he couldn't have possibly understood that or or known to say that the fact is as, as John himself has described he is being an instrument he is speaking what god tells him to speak and so he is speaking forth that truth and and frankly john even acknowledges yes in some part i am speaking out of a sense of ignorance because he says in verse 31 i didn't know him in fact he repeats that again down in verse 33 i myself did not know him but God, in his grace, when I baptized him, showed me the sign that he promised, which was the Spirit descending on him like a dove and remaining there and hearing the voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We see in the other gospel accounts of the baptism. And so John even himself is, is not trying to profess here that he understood everything detail by detail, but that it is God who keeps his word. That God said, I'm sending one after you, you go prepare the way. God said, you'll see him, and this is how you'll see who he is. And God no doubt taught John that this one who is coming will be the lamb who will take away the sin of the world. It's foolish to think that John couldn't make that statement under the leading of God. The statement itself is remarkable. Lamb of God goes back as far as Abraham in Genesis 22. Remember when Abraham takes Isaac up to sacrifice him. And, and following God's instructions, and Isaac says, Father, we've got the wood, we've got the fire, uh, we're missing the lamb. What's the deal with that? In Genesis 22, 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. The significance of that lamb who was sacrificed then grows exponentially by the time you get to the book of Exodus. And the Hebrews have been in captivity, right, in Egypt. And God is in the process of freeing them from captivity through a series of plagues on the Egyptians. The last one is the promise to kill the firstborn in each home. And God in Exodus 12 lays out this procedure by which the Jews, he warns them and says, here's what you are to do. Take a spotless lamb, a spotless one-year-old lamb, Slaughter the lamb, take the blood from the lamb, put it on the doorposts of your home, and at night when I come through, I will pass over your home. Everyone inside will be protected and spared. The sacrifice of the lamb was the means God used to save the lives of the people in that home, particularly the firstborn. I think both of those references are in John's mind as he cries this out, but probably another reference is much more profound because John has already quoted Isaiah to us. If you just keep a finger here or swipe, if you would, to Isaiah in the Old Testament for just a moment, Isaiah 53. One of these passages that unmistakably points to Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of Christ in Isaiah 53. Here is John the Baptist who has already declared from Isaiah 40 that he is a voice. And here in Isaiah 53 verse 4, 700 years before Christ, it says this, Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Up to this point, it's all he's and him's is the identification. Then verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Throughout that passage, it is these pronouns that identify this one who is coming, but then it is the analogy in verse 7 that says, he will be like a lamb who is slaughtered. He will be like one who is silent before his shears. And, and, And the description here of Isaiah's prophecy is abundantly clear. God will take our sin our rebellion against him, our deceit, our lying, all of the the stuff that, that bubbles up in our hearts. And he will take it and he will put it on his son, on this one who is a lamb. And he will then slaughter that lamb. And by the shedding of his blood, our sin will be covered. And we will receive forgiveness and grace. As one commentator puts it, according to the pattern set by the Old Testament sacrificial system, the shed blood of the substitute covered the sins of others and appeased the divine wrath by way of atonement. Our sin deserves wrath. Jesus Christ stands in our place and dies in our place in order to bring to us forgiveness and life. I think it's unquestionable that John knew that prophecy. If he knew Isaiah well enough to know that he was a voice calling out into the wilderness to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, certainly he also recognized the Messiah as the lamb who was sent to take away the sin of the world. It's a remarkable statement. and and, and there's reason to believe that even if John had to be told that this Jesus of Nazareth was the coming of the messiah, the coming Messiah, and certainly it, it's clear that God had to really identify him for John, that he also had some previous understanding. That this Messiah's primary focus was not to come and to be a physical, political, military deliverer. The the major problem facing the Jews was not the oppression of the Romans. It was not their lack of happiness at their plight in life. The major problem that was facing these people that the Messiah was coming to was their sin. And the Messiah was coming not to, not to take away any hardship or, or anything else, not to take away Roman bondage. He was coming to deal with their sin, as Isaiah had promised. The crucial issue, Isaiah says, is our sin that must be punished and appeased and removed if we're to be made right with God. Just a quick sidetrack. When, when he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, This is not, again, universalism. This is not suggesting in the end everyone gets saved because Jesus took care of everyone's sin and so we all end up okay in the end. What it is is saying, particularly in a strongly Jewish context, as as John is writing to, it is to say that Christ's death is sufficient to atone for the sins of anyone in the world, be it Jew, Gentile, or otherwise. The death of Christ is sufficient to cover their sin. This is a sacrifice that is of infinite value. And he's just trying to portray that picture to them. To all who come to him and believe on his name, his sacrifice will be sufficient. John does not introduce when he points out Jesus as the one who has come to make life happy and defeat all our enemies and banish all our problems and take away all our heartaches. He says he has come to take away our sin. He has come to address the fundamental thing that stands between us and God. Uh, Friends, I'd say to you that the charge for you and I is to be equally as clear when we talk about Jesus Christ to other people, to be equally clear when we proclaim the message of the gospel. He is already at this moment Putting the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the focal point of the gospel, because that's how the Lamb takes away the sin of the world, is by his death and resurrection. And so he is already zeroing in on that point that it is Christ as substitute that we need. Sin may not be a pleasant thing to talk about with unbelievers. It's hard enough to talk with unbelievers about our faith in Jesus Christ and what makes us stand out. And and it's easy to try to paint that in terms of, you know, Jesus is my life and Jesus is my faith and Jesus is my hope and, and all of the good things that are true. But if we don't point them to sin as the problem, then we can't bother saying as John does, look, this is the Savior who takes away sin because that means nothing to them. Unless John had done what he had done before, which was laying the groundwork by preaching repentance, unless John had, had he not done that part and said, listen, folks, just because you have Jew as your heritage doesn't mean all is well, because you're sinners who need to be rescued from your sin. Look, now, suddenly it's like, oh, here's the one who's come to take away sin. It's not a question of how well you can perform or what you can live up to to deal with that. Here's the one who's come. Believe on him. We can talk to people all day long about how good and loving and gracious and kind God is, and we should. But we also should not be afraid to talk about the heart of the matter of sin and and, and to let them know that there is a just and holy God who loves them dearly but cannot simply overlook sin. But Jesus Christ came to take away that sin. As we are witnesses for him, let my encouragement to you be from from what we see, I think, this morning in John's Gospel, is that we are pointing and saying, this is the Son of God. That's how he finishes this passage, and he affirms, "I, I am just here to bear witness. This is him. Look at him. When we do the selfie, let them see him at the forefront. Let them see his greatness. Let them see us as people who are resting fully in him so that our humble life, that's attributed to him and his kindness at work in us. When we speak forth his truth, we're speaking forth the truth of who Jesus is, and we're clear about that message. You have a Savior who longs to rescue you from your sin and the punishment that is due that sin, and his name is Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending your son to come and to give his life as a ransom on the cross for our sin. Lord, help us as we live out our lives to not cause your greatness, your son and his sacrifice, to not cause them to be sort of fuzzy in the background of our life. But Lord, help us to live in such a way that that you are at the forefront, that people are, as they're recognizing something different about us, that we are are quickly pointing them to see your glory and your greatness. Forgive us for the times when when our our self-seeking quest to be liked or admired uh, sort of gets in the way of what we say and makes us compromise the message because we're afraid of being disliked. We're afraid of of somebody not admiring us the same because of something that we've said that seems tough. Lord, help us to be people who speak the truth in love. Help us to be the same people who have been on that same plane, standing as sinners condemned by our sin and who were recipients of your grace. May we come alongside others who are in that same place in need of Jesus Christ. And may we point to him and say, look, Look at a beautiful Savior who's come to take away your sin. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the commissioning you've given to us. Help us to be faithful this week as we seek to serve you with our lives. Thank you for the grace and the strength and the spirit going with us to do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.